5 of Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. It's there in verse 11 at the end of Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And then in verse five of Psalm 43, again that refrain, you can't help thinking that this is what the writer wants us above all things to see and to take to ourselves. It's like a hymn that has a repeating chorus. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. It's a song, it's a hymn of longing and desire, and that's the title this morning, Longing for God. It's written by the sons of Korah, this group of singers, worship leaders who uh, worked and did their service for God in the tabernacle, uh, the temple. King David has virtually been hounded out of his kingdom. And as with so many of the Psalms, it seems to be set in the time when Absalom had usurped uh, his father's throne. And David found himself a refugee in his own country, and Absalom setting himself up as king. Psalm 43 and verse 1 reflects that uh, background, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. He's a long, long way from Jerusalem, as far as you could get from Jerusalem and still be within uh, the country, north of Galilee, by where the River Jordan has its source. Mount Hermon is there, often covered with snow, and at a certain time of year, the melting snow from Hermon produced engorged uh, waterfalls, and that's the scene there in verse 6. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. It's as though the sons of Korah, and maybe David himself, were looking at the rushing volume of water. And they felt, and David felt, that he was uh, like one overwhelmed and in danger of losing his footing and just being drowned in the flood of water. But David has the sons of Korah with him. They're loyal to their king. I wonder, though, at the beginning, as you read a psalm like this, as you read about somebody who is weeping, verse 3, my tears have been my food all uh, day and night, as you read about somebody who is in distress, as they clearly are in these 
psalms, as you read about somebody who feels they've been rejected by God. I wonder what your impression of the Christian life is. What do you think it is to be a Christian? And there are at least three false impressions which uh, the psalm, I think, dispels and clears up. From the outside, and even sometimes from the inside, it's all too possible to have a false impression of the Christian life. One false impression is, you Christians have it all easy. You're middle class-ish. You're not affected by the desperate situations that other people find themselves in. Everything just seems to fall into place and the garden is all rosy. And this psalm dispels that impression. You can't read these psalms and come away with the sense that a godly man, because it is written by a godly man, you can't still believe that a godly man has no struggles in his Christian life. So an authentic experience, the authentic Christian life has firstly the presence of contradictions, opposite things all there at the same time. Despair, assurance, tears, joy, the feeling of sinking, and confidence. They're all there at the same time. And that's a very biblical view of the Christian life. In Romans 7, verse 24, Paul, writing as a mature believer, says, O wretched man that I am. And then Peter, later in the New Testament, talks about a joy inexpressible and full of glory. John Newton, the slave trader who was converted to Jesus Christ and whose life was totally turned around, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, he has a less well-known hymn, and it reflects the presence of these contradictions in the Christian life. He says this, strange and mysterious is my life. What opposites I feel within, a stable peace, a constant strife, the rule of grace, the power of sin. Too often I'm captive led, yet daily triumph in my head. I prize the privilege of prayer, but oh, what backwardness to pray. Though on the Lord I cast my care, I feel its burden every day. I seek his will in all I do, yet find my own is working too. I call the promises my own and prize them more than mines of gold. Yet though their sweetness I have known, they leave me unimpressed and cold. One hour upon the truth I feed, the next I know not what I read. I love the holy day of rest when Jesus meets his gathered saints. Sweet day of all the week, the best. For its return, my spirit pants, yet often 
through my unbelief, it proves a day of guilt and grief. While on my Saviour I rely, I know my foes shall lose their aim, and therefore dare their power defy, assured of conquest through his name. But soon my confidence is slain, and all my fears return again. Thus different powers within me strive, and grace and sin by turns prevail. I grieve, rejoice, decline, revive, and victory hangs in doubtful scale, but Jesus has his promise passed that grace shall overcome at last. Here is a psalm that is full of these contradictions. And they are not an indication of an immature believer or an unbeliever. They are the experience, they are the indication of a mature Christian. And then secondly, there are those who think that even if not everything is rosy in the garden for a Christian, even if things are going wrong, you need to pretend that everything is okay. You mustn't admit your failures and your struggles. And again, the psalm gives the lie to that view. The Christian is the one who is honest about how he feels. He's honest in his reactions. He pours out his heart to God. It is almost embarrassingly honest, isn't it, in verse 9, when he says to God, why have you forgotten me? And elsewhere, why have you rejected me? There's no need to pretend as a Christian. God knows everything that there is to know about us. He sees right through. And we can therefore be completely open and free and pour out our hearts to him. And the third thing that the psalm uh, shows as an authentic Christian is that the Christian speaks to himself. The Christian takes himself in hand. The Christian challenges himself. There's a view that the Christian life is essentially passive. We, we let go and we let God. God will intervene. God will do everything. I just need to coast along. The psalmist doesn't feel that. He is taking himself to task. It's as though he's standing to one side of himself and addressing himself and questioning himself. And that's the, uh, the chorus there, isn't it? The psalmist, not a sign of madness, speaking to himself addressing his innermost being. Why are you cast down, O my soul? 
Why are you in turmoil within me? That's a uniquely human function. We're made in the image of God. We, we reason. We think. We can address questions to ourselves. We can take ourselves in hand and say, you ought not to be like this. We don't just let things roll over us and go with the flow. The psalmist knows that things are not as they ought to be, and he's determined to do something about it, to bring it to God and say, Lord, hear me. Lord, this is how I feel. I feel rejected. I feel, I know that people are telling lies about me. Lord, I feel very, very low. My soul is cast down within me. I've never felt as low as this. But how healthy it is psychologically and how authentic it is as a Christian that we are honest and open, that we come to God, that we speak to ourselves, as it were, in the presence of God. And as we do that, we find hope. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. I shall yet praise him, my salvation. That was really a long introduction. There's three uh, points to the, the main part of the sermon. Why is there this longing for God? What is it that we find? What did the psalmist find in God that he couldn't find anywhere else? What was there about God that he sensed that he was in danger of losing if he didn't come back and fix his eyes again upon the Lord? Firstly, a stronghold. Psalm 43 and verse 2. You are the God in whom I take refuge. There was no safety for David in Jerusalem. It sometimes must have felt there was no safety anywhere. He had a sense of being overwhelmed by trouble. He didn't know if he would be uh, able to find the kingdom again. He felt the surging waters would completely overcome him. It's not unusual, is it, in the summer holiday times to hear news reports of uh, people, maybe children, young people, adults as well, getting into trouble by the seaside. Sometimes there are riptides and somebody can be out surfing and if they're not experienced, the, the riptide can carry them right out to sea. It's too powerful for them. Sometimes you uh, hear about people that have got cut off by the tide and they're there on a big stretch of sand or perhaps they're there on some rocks. They've gone out at low tide and they're not prepared for the speed at which the tide uh, rises and comes back in and they find themselves cut off. The water is rising and the rocks are slippery. 
Where do we find our stronghold, our refuge? And particularly when familiar things and the certainties that we once had, when they have gone, where is our stronghold? For the psalmist, it is God himself, God my salvation, God my saviour. He's assured of the constancy and the faithfulness of the Lord. Read uh, verse 8 of Psalm 42. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. He's the one that is always there. When I go to bed, whatever the day has contained, and whatever loss or trauma I've experienced, whatever may have changed, whatever sins I've committed, however low I may have felt, whatever the despair, I go to bed at night, and the steadfast love of the Lord is with me. And I may pray to the God of my life. And he will sustain me as long as he determines to. And secondly, it isn't just that God is a, a stronghold, but that God is satisfaction. That is what the psalmist finds God to be, the living God, the God of my life. And that's echoed, isn't it, in the New Testament the Lord Jesus sets himself forward to be the one, the only one, who satisfies the bread of life in John 6, the fountain of living water in John 7. The psalmist knows that he hasn't found such joy ever as he had when he was in the presence of God. Verse 4 of Psalm 43, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. And verse 4 of um, Psalm 42, I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. You can see why the psalmist says elsewhere, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And I'm sure there are many here whose testimony is this morning that they have made many wrong turns trying to find joy trying to find ultimate delight and ultimate satisfaction. And they found out the hard way that there isn't joy and there isn't satisfaction that lasts anywhere but in God, the living God. It's true, the world has many remedies for being downcast. It's why people uh, drink Alcohol, it's why people turn to drugs. Because there's 
a longing. There's a desire for satisfaction. But we go to other things instead of going to the Lord. We lose sight of him. And what a costly and what a tragic diversion that can be. Many spend years in that before their eyes are opened. The world's entertainment and the diversions the world has, the things that distract us, the things that uh, are advertised to us, come, come, get this, get that, spend your money on this, spend your money on that, then, once you have that, then finally you'll be happy. Those things just create more thirst. The rhyme of the ancient mariner is a very long and um, uh, well-known poem. And uh, it's, uh, there's a verse that's written on the experience of uh, some people who were starving and thirsty their boat was adrift on the ocean. There was no wind. It was absolutely flat and calm. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. So they were floating on water, sparkling, blue, clear water. But it was salt water, seawater. They couldn't drink it without virtually killing themselves and certainly making themselves very ill. And that's the case as we are in the world afloat on a sea of pleasures. But there's not a drop to drink that will satisfy Christ alone. It's the testimony of the Bible, including the psalm, Christ alone has the living water. And then thirdly, there, there are certainties that the psalmist finds in God. And he brings himself back in the words of our uh, chorus, our refrain. He brings, brings himself back to the assurance that there are certainties. There are things that are definitely true. There are things that cannot be denied. And I don't know about you, but in my lowest times, I have the Bible open in front of me, and I have to say to myself, either these things are true, or they're lies. And even in my worst moments, I cannot bring myself to say that God has lied in Scripture. Therefore, they must be true. Therefore, I take them to myself they are my certainty. So, for the psalmist, faith wins through, holding on to the certainties. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Once you reject the certainties, once you reject the framework of Scripture, once you reject the gospel, the only honest outlook is despair. Not everyone who rejects the gospel finds themselves 
in despair, but it's the only honest outlook. If you sit truly and think about the issues. There's a very dramatic example uh, of this that I heard recently. Uh, it's in a book published this year, the memoir of a young man brought up in a pastor's house who in his teens rejected the certainties, rejected the faith of his parents, turned his back on the gospel and went his own way and ended up in addiction to class A drugs and attempted suicides. The reason for the psalmist being downcast is that he had lost sight of those certainties. Don't reject those certainties. They are the only certainties, the only thing you could be absolutely sure of. And then fourthly, the thing that the psalmist is longing for, the thing about God that draws his longing is that God is his savior. God will rescue him. That's his prayer, isn't it, in verse 1 of Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. He says, doesn't he, send your light and your truth in verse 3. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. And right at the very center, right at the core of the dwelling of God, right in at the very hub, as it were, of the, the blessings that are in the presence of God is there in verse 4. There's a sense of sequence of progress here. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. The psalmist know that the, the altar, the place of sacrifice, that's the thing that most of all makes God, God. The fact that God has provided a place of sacrifice. The fact of Calvary, the fact of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, man and God, Jesus, the promised king, the savior, the redeemer, the fact that we have an altar that we can look to, the fact that a work was done at Calvary, that Jesus bled and died for sinners. That's the essence of what slakes our thirst. That's the essence of what our longing is for. It's for God to be our savior. It's for our guilt to be taken away, for our burdens to be lifted. And that won't be found anywhere else. You may be thinking, yes, for the Christian, I can see all these things are true, but what if I don't long for God and for his presence? What if the psalmist's song 
and the cry that is recorded here. What if I feel that that is a million miles from my experience now? The point is that all longing is for God. And your very wish that you had a longing for God is a longing for God. Every human longing, every human sense of need points towards God. The addict craving his next fix is longing for God. That's the very uh, root of the word addiction before it took on a more negative connotation. Originally, it means to be assigned to something or to be devoted to or taken up with. Every human longing is for God. The trouble is that we find other substitutes that are way, way short of God, way, way short of Jesus. If I could paraphrase the Apostle Paul uh, when he was in Athens, the God that you long for without realizing it, him I proclaim to you. All longing, however it's expressed, however far, far short of God it falls, all longing is for God. It can never be met without him. And we shouldn't therefore rush to judge the person who has difficulties with substance misuse, whether it's alcohol or drugs. If they don't yet have Christ, and if the world doesn't have an answer for the worthlessness that they feel or the injustice or the trauma to which they've been exposed, what are they going to do? They will find an answer somewhere. We have something better, a better way. There but for the grace of God go all of us. These psalms, these psalms of longing <clears throat> show us that God in Jesus Christ is always the answer, not just to the explicit cries of the heart as we find here in the psalm, but also the unexpressed longings, the half-formed longings of the human heart. Everybody, whether they acknowledge or not, are crying out for God. And nothing else will satisfy in your loss, in your sense of worthlessness, in your sense of failure or regret or whatever it might be, nothing less will satisfy. God alone, at the core of his presence, at the core of what he offers, has a remedy for sin and gives peace with God. Prophet Isaiah says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. 
Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. He will satisfy the longing heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for <clears throat> the promises of your word that are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We thank you that these are words that could be utterly relied upon. Here is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Father, we pray that you'd give us that faith simply to hold on to your word and never let go. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing then as a, a closing hymn, Show Me Thy Face. <clears throat>